You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. And as we begin this new year of 2019, I'd like to welcome Mayor John Tory. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure as always, Libby, and Happy New Year to you and to all your listeners. Okay, so uh, let me give our numbers out again because I'm sure that our listeners have some questions or comments they'd like to give to you directly. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Mayor Tory, first of all, congratulations on winning your second term. Well, thank you. It seems like a long time ago. I was back at work the next morning, uh, quite literally at five o'clock in the morning doing interviews and whatnot. And it just seems like I sort of picked up where I left off. You almost forget there was an election, but there certainly was. And I appreciate the support people extended to me. And now on with the job. Okay. Well, there certainly was an election. We'll get to that in a bit. But, uh, you know, generally you're, you're very responsive and generally you are reacting to whatever the breaking news is. So, so taking a bit of a longer view, what are your top two priorities? priorities for the year. Well, they have to continue to be uh, transit and housing. And I'm not sure in which order. I think certainly in the election, I think people comforted by the fact that we had a transit plan, which had been approved by the council and which they overwhelmingly uh, you know, gave me a mandate on, because that's the only brochure that I produced was one that laid out the transit plan with a map and listed the projects and said, this is what's been approved. And I, you know, I won the election with a, a decisive uh, uh, victory. So I would say that people accept the fact we have a transit plan and they're saying, just get it built. And the issue that came up more during the uh, election, I would say, uh, because they, I think, knew we had a transit plan, was affordable housing, affordable rental housing. And, you know, whether it's seniors or whether it's young people or people in between, uh, the problem we've got in the city of Toronto, and it's a problem created by success, exactly. uh, all the people coming here, is that it's hard if you're making, say, $50,000 a year, pick a number, before tax, to find a place to live that's affordable in the city of Toronto. And so we've got to dramatically uh, ramp up our uh, production of affordable rental housing in particular, and I would say those are the top two um, issues that really are, you know, things that confront us as we uh, move forward. You know, whenever we, we deal with that, I, I ask the question, because uh, as, as a young woman starting out, you know, not making too much money, I lived in New York City for a while, and there was kind of an issue of expectations. It was a very expensive city, and nobody expected to be able to buy a house uh, in in midtown Manhattan or an apartment or whatever it was. Is part of the problem that just because of what happened in the past or this happened recently that people just, their expectations are out of whack for living in a city like Toronto? No, I don't think so. I don't think we ever want to say that it's, uh, you know, unrealistic expectations for people to think they'll own a home. I think home ownership is a really good thing. Um, and I think it's a very good way to prepare yourself for the later days, you know, when you retire, because the equity you build up in your house can be a very important part of your savings plan. But having said that, what I'm talking about here um, is more the the availability of rental housing. And I think, you know, I, I understand the New York analogy because Toronto is very much that way. We're in a rapid growth phase right now. We have thousands of people coming here and they all need a place to live. And the problem we have is there's lots of places to live if you make a lot of money. And there's actually places to live if you're, you know, very uh, disadvantaged. Uh, there, there's a, you know, we have uh, public housing and, and so on. But if you're in that middle group of people who are 
working, uh, starting your career or in a job where your income is never going to rise that high, it really has become a problem to find a place to rent, uh, let alone to own. Uh, and so that is where we have to increase the supply of what I've said is affordable rental housing in particular. And there's a great deal of interest on the part of the development community. And what the government has to do is put some incentives in place to make sure that that's what they're doing and sort of make our process better so that these houses can be built, these apartments can be built fa- faster. Okay. Uh, one of our big priorities here is uh, pedestrian safety, the Vision Zero program. Uh, we had a record year for uh, pedestrian and cyclist deaths, something we never want to see. Now, um, around Christmas time, uh, you actually said that, at least according to the numbers, Vision Zero is not working. And then, of course, you took a lot of flack for saying that, even though that, you know, anyone who looks at the numbers in relation to the two years and the $20 million spent, I mean, that is the conclusion you would have to draw. You know, it is interesting when you're sort of honest about saying that things are not working as we would want them to work. And, of course, the idea here is to drive the number down to zero. And everybody knows it's not going to happen overnight. But you want to see the numbers headed in the right direction. And by saying that, you know, we hadn't had that experience the last couple of years, the numbers were going up. And so I obviously can't accept that. And and I can't accept that we must be doing all the right things, uh, you know, if, if the numbers are still going up. And when I say we, I mean we in the very collective sense. The government provides leadership and does certain things. Uh, but the public has to has to go along with that because what accompanied that was something else for which I took criticism, including from some of my election competitors, uh, was that um, you know a, lo- a big part of the answer to this is the public changing some of their behavior, especially people who drive cars, because they have the protection of, as I've said before, two tons of steel around them, and they're still way too much distracted driving. I noted with interest, Libby, that uh, Mayor de Blasio in New York, in commenting on this year's Vision Zero report in that city, said which was that Great. In a year when the numbers were actually going up of pedestrians that had been, after years they'd gone down, this year they went up a bit, the pedestrians who'd been killed, he said the biggest single contributor to that was, you know, sort of poor driving habits, including in particular distracted driving on the part of people driving cars. So I've indicated my dissatisfaction. I can't possibly sit back and say, yes, I'm satisfied. Everything's going as it should be when the numbers are going up. And so we're now taking a look. So one of the things I ask for, just so your listeners will know, I don't just generally say anybody got any ideas. Scarborough, in the east part of Toronto, um, had 40% of the pedestrian deaths, and they don't have 40% of the population or 40% of the land mass of Toronto. And so I asked our officials to take a look at all the people who lost their lives in Scarborough this past year and, and see what common characteristics there were. Was speeding involved, or was it because they were in stretches of road that had no uh, crossing, you know, no crossing areas for, for signals or for crosswalks? People complain about that a lot in uh, areas like Scarborough, where you have to walk a long time between the lights, so they right. don't... They cross against the light and then bad things happen. Exactly. And so I want to, but I want to get this based on the facts of what happened in Scarborough last year, because we did have an unusual and, and tragic number of deaths there. So that's the kind of information I've asked for. And I clearly indicated in those interviews and just being honest, it just shows you you're honest enough to say you're not satisfied and that it clearly isn't working the way it's intended to work. It just means we have more work to do and you get sort of criticized for that. But I'm just asking for the facts and I am quite prepared to consider nothing's off the table as far as I'm concerned in terms of making 
sure we try to, you know, drive those numbers down over time. There's going to be no magic answer that happens overnight, but uh, I'm, that's why I've asked for this information, and uh, people will hear from me once I've sort of looked at it and had a chance to suggest some ideas as, as to things we can do uh, that uh, are going to help. And is there, have you given some kind of deadline, say, hey, people, if this doesn't work by so-and-so, we're really going to, you know, have to rethink it? Well, I mean, I, look, I'm rethinking it now. Yeah. I mean, do we rethinking in the sense of saying, what more can we do? And I've posed that question to our officials, and I want this information back about Scarborough and so on, like ASAP. I, I don't want it in six months. I want it now so that we can consider and implement things that need to be uh, implemented. So I'm, I'm uh, you know, wasting no time on tra- trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make this Vision Zero program. And, and by the way, you know, when you talked earlier on about uh, seniors, I think the numbers, I think I'm right, that close to 65 or 70 yeah. percent those who lost their lives were 55 and, and, and up in age. And so that indicates a particular group of people who are being victimized by this more so than others. And so that's a relevant consideration as well to take into account here. Absolutely. Now, uh, just yesterday, we talked about the new uh, traffic blitz, both for uh, selfish drivers and for uh, distracted drivers. We've done this before. And the numbers of, of people that are tagged and towed are very large. Uh, but, you know, once the blitz ends, it doesn't seem to stick. Well, on the one hand, yes, I I agree with that. It's true. I mean, behavior reverts back to the inconsiderate, selfish behavior and the dangerous behavior, frankly, of people who drive distracted. Uh, But I I do liken it to what we went through with seatbelts over the last 25 years, where, you know, when they finally made it compulsory, uh, it took years and years before people actually wore their seatbelts, and some still don't. Uh, And the same is true even with drinking and driving. You know, it took a long time before people's habits changed, and they came to realize that drinking and driving was serious antisocial criminal behavior. So um, I think we've just got to keep at the blitzes. I indicated yesterday that I was not uh, myself averse to saying that if the behavior didn't change, uh, that I would look at inflicting greater pain when it came to these blitzes. Because right now, for example, on the parking one, uh, you know, the provincial government has just recently dramatically increased the fines and the points for distracted driving. And, well, they should do that. I think it was great. Um, That will now be enforced. But on the parking side, when people park in rush hour in an inconsiderate manner and block traffic, um, you only get a ticket, when I say only, you get a ticket for $150. And if people keep doing it, then that's an indication in some respects that the pain that's inflicted by the $150 ticket is not enough. And so I'm you know, willing to reconsider that if, if we find that the behavior isn't changing as quickly as it needs to uh, in order to address the problem of congestion, which is a social problem, it's an economic problem, it's an environmental problem. Uh, it just makes the city a less pleasant place to live and we have to deal with it. What, what about, I mean, right now they have to ticket before they can call a tow truck? Like, what about if you're just able to call a tow truck right away, get that that car off the road? The idea that was actually put forward by one of the police officers yesterday, which I'm now taking up here at City Hall, uh, which achieves the same objective you just set out, is to actually have a parking enforcement officer ride in the tow truck. Yeah. And so then what you can do is they arrive on the scene of a car parked where it shouldn't be. They issue the ticket, and they're issuing the ticket while it's being hoisted up on the tow truck and towed away. And so I I see no reason why we can't do that. And I came back to City Hall after hearing about this from the police yesterday saying, why not? And so you can be sure uh, those are the kinds of things we're going to do uh, to make sure. And and one of the things that the the police officer, Superintendent 
ba- Baptiste, who was there yesterday, made very clear in his comments was, they're not going to this time come up politely behind you and honk the horn or flash their lights a couple of times to say you should move along. They're just going to hoist you up and tow you away. And, and that is uh, exactly what they should be doing, because people have been warned enough times, even since I've been mayor, there are signs posted everywhere that clearly say no stopping in rush hour. And these are people who are just inconsiderate. They think it's okay for them to park their car for just five minutes. Meantime, as all the listeners know, a big lineup of cars develops behind them because the people have to turn into another lane. And so it's just inconsiderate behavior, and it causes massive dislocation to people. Absolutely. And we're going to be trying to do away with it. Okay, uh, let's take a couple of calls. And uh, Diane, hi. You have a question about getting reimbursed by the feds. Yes, hi, Libby. Hi, uh, Mayor Tory. Yeah, hi. when you were on the program about a month ago, Mayor, uh, you said, I'm going on record right here and now, and I promise you we're going to get back our $64 million that we incurred for the cost with respect to the uh, illegal border crossers. And you said you were going to do that by the end of December. Well, do, we we have, have our, do we have our money? We're getting there. Uh, we've had two installments <laughs> now, as it were. We had the first one for $11 million and the second one for $15 million. And so we're at 26, which is, I know, some distance from 64, but it's certainly better than zero. And I will just tell you that our the, 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 the federal minister in particular, Mr. Blair, who's well known to Torontonians, um, is well aware of how much we've invested in looking after uh, people who are uh, asylum claimants and refugees and uh, has indicated that uh, they are considering uh, additional funding, because it isn't just Toronto. It's principally Montreal, Toronto, and Winnipeg that are facing a number of these uh, asylum claimants that are coming to the country. So the answer is $26 million and counting, and uh, I'm, I'm keeping up the uh, you know the pressure. And the federal government, uh, to give them credit, has been responsive to the tune of $26 million, with uh, every indication there's more to come. Okay. Well, they've offered $300 million to Quebec, so why are they so slow with ours? Uh, you know, these are the stories you see written up by people who say they've offered $300 million to Quebec. They've been in extensive discussions with Quebec and Montreal, as they have been with Ontario and Toronto. And I can only say to you that there has been no money actually given uh, to Quebec, aside from the kind of money that we're talking about here. In other words, they've received similar sums in Montreal. But uh, I can just say to you that the $300 million number has not been confirmed by anybody. Uh, so uh, you have to be careful when you you see these stories uh, that there's they're speculation more so than they are fact. Okay, thank you, Diane, for your call. Uh, John in Brampton, hi, and you have a question about uh, the mayor's support of uh, a complete handgun ban. Yes, I do. Thanks, Libby. Um, yes, uh, Mayor Tory, um, there was something uh, reported, uh, according to the um, officially reported as statistics from our police department, that legal gun owners were selling their guns. And this was a part of the problem. Were you you're, you're aware of that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, yes. Uh, let me put it slightly differently than the way you put it. I mean, you're, you're, what, what was happening and is happening, and this information didn't come from me or from some anonymous source. It came from the chief of police in Toronto, that there has developed quite an active marketplace in Toronto uh, where people perfectly legally go and follow all the requirements and fill out all the paperwork to buy multiple guns uh, and then end up trafficking those guns illegally. So they buy them legally. So there's no suggestion that people who are target shooters are suddenly deciding, you know, in some moment... Uh, 
of, 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 of uh, aberrant behavior that they're going to go and sell their guns to criminals. What what is happening is that there has developed a, a domestic gun trafficking uh, issue, and that is why uh, you know this week you saw a man that was in court charged with importing guns from the United States, and he was he's about to go to jail, and, and rightly so, he should go for a long time. A lot uh, of guns. Wow. Well, yeah, guy. he brought in sixty-seven guns or something. I know, and in, in his clothes or something. Like, really. Yeah, they said he had them in his pants and whatnot. But that, that's the fifty percent that comes from the U.S., and then the other half are guns. Some of them are stolen from legal gun owners, but many of them are now in this trafficking. And this does not represent the people who are law-abiding gun owners. It represents people who clearly buy them with criminal intent or form a criminal intent to sell them later. Uh, and that is going on in the city. Can I point out to you, I first of all, I've just taken the, the uh, uh, licensing course for uh, yeah. handguns. not going to buy one. I just don't like having another right taken away from me. In, in the course of taking um, uh, the, the prescribed courses uh, and uh, licensing requirements, first of all, you join a gun club, and you pay for the courses, and you pay for the instruction, you pay for John, the uh, John, we have a lot of people waiting, so can you kind of uh, get to what you're trying to say here? Okay, the bottom line is you can't do that as a legal gun owner. You simply can't. What, you sell a gun? One gun when you get your license. Okay, thanks, you wanna- thanks John, yeah, the for that. The fact is, Libby, just yeah. to finish that off, yeah. I mean, John is wrong because if you're if you're forming a criminal intent, you can do anything you want. You can do it. It doesn't say it's legal. Yeah. But you can buy a gun legally and then dis- and then sell it illegally, and you don't bother with gun clubs and paperwork. You just sell it to a, somebody in the criminal element, and and then it falls into the wrong hands and gets involved in these shootings. And that just does happen, and it's just a fact. Yep, absolutely, it's just a fact. Uh, and before we move on to our next question, since we're on the subject of guns, you know, uh, people are just starting to feel unsafe here. Uh, We had the chief of police in last week. We talked about it with him. Part of the problem is that a lot of these really brazen shootings, they just, they used to happen in certain parts of the city only, and now anywhere and everywhere, these thugs open fire if uh, they're so moved. I mean, you know, how, how do we, you know, turn this back? Well, I mean, it's indicative of a of an increased level of gang activity, which I'm sure the chief talked to you about when yeah. he was there. Uh, and I and I think saying anywhere and everywhere is an exaggeration because while well, you're right, what's happened now is I mean, not to oversimplify this, in some cases rival gangs from different parts of the city are kind of meeting in the middle when they have a dispute, so they end up engaged in gunfire. And I, look, how this happens doesn't make it any better. If it happens anywhere once, it's it's a bad scene. Uh, so we did have that problem going on uh, last year and. Uh, I can only assure you that the police uh, service, with increased support from the province and from the city, uh, are making additional investments in having you know, more boots on the ground, as it were, to try and deal with this. They're using modern techniques, as the chief, what I'm sure, have told you, to try and deal with the gangs, because nowadays you keep up with them on social media as much as you do anywhere else. Exactly. Uh, and then we're also pressing for some changes to the law, as we were sort of discussing a minute ago, and we're investing in these neighborhoods where, you know, I, I sort of proceed from the following assumption. The two things we really have to do are, number one, reduce the supply of guns available illegally to people, and two, uh, reduce the inclination any young person, because a lot of these people, as you know, are like 15, 17, 19 years old, reduce the inclination they would ever have to pick up a gun if one was sitting on a table in front of them, you know? 
I'd run 100 miles an hour the other way if I saw a gun sitting on a table. I would never dream of picking it up. But there are people, young people, who pick it up, put it in their pocket, and then worse than that even, they use it. And so we've got to just reduce the supply so those guns aren't there. And secondly, reduce the inclination by investing in young people and their families and neighborhoods uh, to cause them to believe there's a much better way to live your life than ever to go near a gun. How is it working with the smaller council? When it came to it, uh, the premier said, you know, John Tory is going to thank me. He's going to be the biggest beneficiary of this. He repeated that to me recently, said I'd be thanking him. And I just said, well, look, I said we had one meeting, basically, in December. There was a, like a business meeting. And I will just say to you, it was, you know, a business-like meeting. It was a shorter meeting in terms of the amount that got done in a period of time. And I think that was a function largely of the fact that now when you have 25 people making speeches and asking questions, that's going to take a shorter time than having 45 people asking questions and making speeches. So, look, I'm an optimist. I, I think there are people here who recognize that we're all being watched in terms of our, you know, productivity, and that includes Mr. Ford watching, and and it also includes Mr. Ford uh, being accountable for the fact he sort of promised this would be a much better uh, arrangement for everybody when he did that in the way he did, which I found to be unacceptable, as you know, but uh, we're going to, look, my job is to make this work uh, as as the mayor and uh, to work with my colleagues, and I'm hoping for the best, that everybody will want to get more done and and, uh, spend our time productively and have the public proud of us, as opposed to being embarrassed by us. Well, um, some people uh, not connected to the government think that this is kind of a step in the direction of a strong mayor system uh, and that you have a better chance of putting your agenda through. Do you agree with that? No, because there were no changes to my powers or rights or privileges as mayor that accompanied the reduction in the size of the council. Uh, and I didn't ask for any, and I'm not complaining about the fact that they weren't given. I'm simply saying I ran for re-election uh, on the basis of the powers of the mayor as they were. Those powers have not changed. You've not seen me up at Queen's Park begging for any changes. Mr. Ford is the one that raised that some time ago, and if he wishes to do something about that, I guess we'll hear from him. But uh, I'm just saying to you that right now the, my powers, so-called as mayor, are exactly what they were before. And I just hope that the new council will just decide, because it's men and women who come here to get things done, that they're going to make the place less fractious. You know, I think in a world that is absolutely beset everywhere by division and polarization and, and excessive partisanship and all this kind of thing, that we can maybe be a bit of a model here. And I certainly try in the way I conduct myself to be someone where the public can say, well, there's a guy who's trying his best. I'm not perfect, but trying his best just to try and do the right thing and, and, and not get into a lot of partisanship and a lot of you know, hostile encounters down here. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And that'll make the city council work as well as anything else that could be done legislatively or otherwise. And how's it going with Premier Ford? Well, it's, it's, it, I've described it, I think, very honestly and accurately as a, as a work in progress. Uh, we had a meeting uh, over Christmas uh, together, and it was a very businesslike uh, d- discussion about the issues you'd expect us to be discussing. We were discussing transit and housing and programs for young people and various things. And, uh, you know, so I guess, you know, in, in these cases, what you have to do is look back after six months and then a year and say, well, what did you get done together? Uh, you know, how much uh, cooperation was there as opposed to conflict? And, you know, I would just say the discussion we had a week or so ago was uh, uh, business-like as people would expect and hope for. And so uh, we'll see where that goes. Okay. uh, Speaking of uh, transit, Alda has a question about transit. Hello, Alda. Hi. How are you? Fine. How are you? Hi, Alda. Good, good. Um, Yeah. I just want to know, I know that the city puts in a lot of money in the province into the TTC, but service has not improved in the last 10 years 
it's always delays and delays. Even yesterday, there was a delay. I was going downtown. The platforms were packed that people couldn't even move. People were trying to get into the subway. They couldn't get into the train. It was really, really bad. And uh, why is it that so much money is put into it, and yet the uh, service has been terrible for the last 10 years? Well, I, I can't speak to 10 years. I, I can tell you oh, that since I, here, I take the TTC. I've no, always taken the TTC. And, and so do I. It has uh, but, been the I've last been taking 10 it for years. 10 years, too, like, I, you know, whether I had this job or some other job. But I can just say to you that, um, you know, we are making a record investment. You noted that, and you're saying the service hasn't improved. I guess we're measuring it in terms of how the trains perform every day, um, you know, when there are delays. And, look, there are going to be delays in any transit system, just like there are delays at the airport or delays at the Union Station or bus, on bus service. There are delays. But I will just tell you the improve the trend line has actually, based on facts, been improving. I'll just give you an example of that because we have used both technology and just a, more careful planning. We have put uh, two or three times in the last month a record number of trains through uh, down along the Young Street line and through Young and Bloor than ever before. The number is 29 trains, and that that will mean nothing to anybody except the more trains you can obviously put through the system safely, the more people you can move. And we've had 29 trains go through three times, I think, in the last 30 days using the technology we have, and that um, means that there are going to be fewer instances where people can't get on a train, because obviously the more trains you have, then it's going to provide for more capacity. So we're working very hard, and the management of the TTC is working hard, and I think actually their performance has been improving, but there are going to be bad days. And the bad days, as you know, are sometimes caused by medical emergencies. They're caused by technical problems. But there actually have been, and you don't want to hex yourself, there have been fewer of those uh, in the last few months, for example, than in the preceding period. So uh, they're working hard, and they have certainly a mandate and full support, financial and otherwise, from me, uh, to make sure we improve that service, uh, knowing that the real improvement is going to come when we build all the transit that we're building, the relief line, the Scarborough subway extension, Smart Track. These are things that are all underway, but until they're completed and people are riding on them, that's going to make a huge difference. The next big project to come online in terms of people using it will be the Eglinton Crosstown, uh, which will be online in 2021. It's well under construction, as people well know, and uh, we need to keep building, though. We took decades off building, and we couldn't afford to do that then, and we've got to keep on building now. Okay, let's uh, get in a question from Barbara in Toronto. Hi, Barbara. You want to know about uh, housing? Yes. First of all, thank you for everything you're doing, Libby, and Mayor, you're doing an outstanding job, and you speak very well as as well. Thank you. You're welcome. So my question is concerning affordable rental housing, and thank you for looking into that and looking out for us. I'm one of those renters, and the question is that I'm sure you know the guideline for rental increases is 1.8%. And many landlords, especially new landlords, including ours, make different um, building changes and what are supposed to be improvements. Unfortunately, in our case, they're not improvements. But anyway, the above guideline increase is way, way above. And tenants are not able to afford these huge above guideline increases. And we heard that you're planning to do away with them, which we're so thrilled about and hoping for. 
So I thought I would ask you about that. Do away with the above guideline increases? Yes. Well, that's, first of all, that's not our responsibility. It's the responsibility, it's it's based on provincial legislation. And so what they said they were going to do was, the only change I'm aware they said they're going to make was to actually take new apartments out of rent control entirely uh, to try and stimulate more uh, more construction of, of, of housing. Um, in, in our case, the, the, I thought where you were going was we have asked uh, for a review of what what the definition definition is of affordable because that produces a number that's actually produced out of the federal government of about I think eleven or twelve hundred dollars a month and for even a lot of people who are working, uh, that's a number that sometimes becomes unaffordable, even though that's the threshold for affordable housing. And so our, our, our main challenge at the moment is to actually increase the supply of affordable housing. And, and so what we've done as a first step in this new council, which is only like three weeks old, uh, is to put up 11 pieces of city-owned land, uh, and that'll be formally approved at the meeting coming up in two weeks, uh, and have all of those 11 pieces of land spread across the city made available to the development industry for or the construction of affordable rental housing and other rental housing, but on the condition that a substantial percentage of what they put on those 11 pieces of land be affordable rental housing. And so, and that involves us subsidizing it by either forgiving taxes or forgiving development charges or whatever. So that's what we're focused on at the moment. But any change that would be made to above guideline increases, and indeed the entire concept of above guideline increases is based on provincial legislation. Okay, Barbara, thank you for your call. Uh, I know we have to wrap things up here. Uh, Mayor Tory. you've said, I think, more than once that you're going to leave it at two terms. Is, uh, is, do you want any wiggle room on that? Well, I'm, I, I, you know, look, it's, uh, I, I get to decide what I want, and the voters get to decide what they want at the end of the day. Uh, what I have said is this, um, that I am so determined to keep these agenda items moving through, uh, including affordable housing, including transit, including as well attracting jobs to the city, keeping taxes low, and, and a big concern I have, which is sort of addressing the disparity between comfortable neighborhoods and those that are severely marginalized, that if I felt there were people who were trying to undo all of that, um, that I, I, I wouldn't be uh, you know, hesitant to 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 examine running uh, another time to make sure I could see this work through because I think it's very important. But you know what? We're two or three weeks, as I said, into the second term, so I'm not going to worry much about the third term. I'm just going to focus my intention on making the new smaller council work well and on getting stuff done, getting that affordable housing built that we were just discussing, getting the transit plan implemented, attracting jobs to Toronto, which I've been helping to do uh, as a member of the team in a very successful way, uh, representing the city in a way that people can be proud of, and if I just keep focused on those things, then we'll discuss the next election when we get a bit closer. Okay, well, I hear wiggle room there, and uh, thank you very much okay, for Libby, joining us. Okay, I'm happy to come on on a regular basis and take these questions. They're very interesting. Okay, well, I was going to say we uh, couldn't get to all of them, including from our next guest, so you will have to come back soon. We appreciate it. Thank okay. you. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Bye-bye. Now. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 